So the paper is uh, uh, really, uh, you can read it two ways. Uh, on one hand, it is about the effect that scientists and engineers have on economic productivity. On the other, it is trying to evaluate uh, a policy that we have to let scientists and engineers in, uh, which is the H-1B visa policy in the United States, and see how good or not good has it been for the United States. And this is related with this idea of allowing freer mobility and taking advantage of that. So whenever uh, I will have uh, uh, the slides there, I, um, I will, do I have to do something? Let's wait until the slides are there. <laughs> there is some. Does anyone know how to get the slides there? Do you, for example? There we go. There we go. Ah. Close, all right. Okay, uh, so uh, <laughs> that's hard to do. Um, so the, uh, the main question, as I said, is how do scientists and engineers affect the productivity in US uh, and in Canada? We have also an analysis on Canada, but we will focus on the US. Um, the idea is that uh, attracting scientists and engineers can be a very effective growth promote growth-promoting policy. Uh, and a lot of cities, a lot of locality, actually list this as one way of boosting growth. Um, uh, uh, moreover, uh, right now in the Senate, there is a bill which is under discussion that is considering to increase, actually, the quota in the number of highly educated uh, immigrants that we let in, and uh, uh, in particular of these H-1B visas. And a good chunk of these H-1B visas, as I will argue, are ending up being scientists and engineers, at least they have in the past. And so asking how do they affect the long-run growth and the long-run productivity of American cities is important. So the method that we're going to use um, that you don't see, oh. uh, here we go. OK, there is a disconnect between what's there and what's here now. But what do I do in order to? Uh, OK. Um, Meanwhile, for upcoming, <laughs> for upcoming events, please visit www.cato.org. OK, perfect. <laughs> now we do. So, uh, okay, I'm gonna tell a couple of things about here. Uh, <laughs> at the end, based on this effect that I'm gonna estimate, I'm also gonna tell you a little bit what are the effects that, uh, if passed, this bill could have on uh, long-run productivity uh, uh, based on the uh, on the estimates that I have here. Uh, so the. Um, um, so the, the, the approach, this is an empirical paper, really, and the approach is to try to quantify what is uh, the effect of uh, this uh, increase in scientists and engineers on wage and employment of uh, American workers. The way in which we're going to do this is we're going to try to use the variation across the cities, across the metropolitan area in the United States. And the idea is that I'm going to argue for part that we can credibly construct a policy-driven change in the number of these scientists and engineers that ended up in each of 219 American cities uh, based on how foreign nationality were distributed in 1980 and based on the change in this H-1P visa. And then we're going to uh, analyze their impact at the local level on employment and wage. In a more complicated model, you can back up the effect on productivity, but I will say something uh, here. And then we're going to compare this effect with uh, the effect of other potential 
policy to increase employment wage and therefore productivity, uh, 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 which are um, affecting the industrial structure of these cities, so attracting fast-growing industry, or affecting the college enrollment, increasing the number of college-educated people in the city. Now, the three key pieces of the literature that we're going to use are these. Uh, on one hand, there is a pretty broad consensus among economists that if we have to name one of the long-run determinants of productivity growth, uh, technological innovation, which is mainly driven by scientists and engineers, is very high up in the list. So this is an important uh, productivity, is a very important determinant of growth uh, in the United States, and the scientists and engineers are a main input of growth. Then there is an urban and regional literature that emphasizes the fact that really a lot of the benefit that comes from having highly educated people is local on top of national. Technological adoption, local spillover, increase the benefits and the productivity of cities, which have a lot of these innovators. And then the other interesting thing is that if you look across countries, scientists and engineers are really a group of very mobile people. This is a resource which is, I would say, more footloose than many others, certainly than most of the other workers. There is a part in the paper in which we document that a lot of countries have 40 or 20 or 40 a big chunk of their percentage of scientists working abroad. And conversely, that country like the United States and Canada relying on 30-40% of their scientists and engineers being from abroad. And so this is a resource that in a way can be moved across country. If it's so important for growth and for local growth, then it's a very interesting uh, resource to tap. Uh, the main result that we have here that I'm going to anticipate is that this uh, immigration-driven increase in scientists and engineers uh, was a very uh, uh, important supply-driven shock of, uh, of engineers uh, for U.S. cities um, uh, in the period 1990 to 2010. I will talk about this program. H-1B visa has been started in 1990. And just to give you an idea, an increase of scientists and engineers by 1% of the total employment, which is a big increase, as you will see, because scientists and engineers are 3-4%, increases, however, uh, the wage paid to, to college-educated uh, native uh, worker by 5%. That's the biggest effect. So it looks like these uh, scientists and engineers produce an innovation that increases productivity, but particular productivity of college-educated in line with this idea of skill bias productivity uh, uh, taking place in the last 20 years. And uh, this idea, if you back up uh, the productivity effect of this, uh, or if you transform this into what was the growth of the wage of college educated uh, in the 20 years they were analyzing, it looks like this inflow of foreign uh, scientists and engineers with the innovation and productivity growth that they produced can be responsible for almost a quarter of the growth in the wage of college educated in the US, uh, worker in the US. And as everybody knows, the college educated are the one whose uh, wage grew more in these uh, 20 years, 1990 to 2010, increased by 15% overall, roughly. So this is a big chunk. So um, the empirical part. I will ask, uh, I'm going to show you some estimates of essentially this uh, equation. I'm going to come here because my voice is loud. I'm sure you can hear me and I can point the thing. This is our... So uh, the simple structure of the model is trying to estimate the impact with a simple regression of a change in scientists and engineers. Delta S and E is the increase in scientists and engineers who are foreigners, who come from abroad, standardized by the total employment 
of a city in a certain year on some outcome, and the outcome will be growth in wage and growth in employment of either non-college educated or college educated. We're going to look at the impact on the highly and on the less educated. And we're going to use, we're going to put a time fix effect, a city fix effect, other controls, and we're going to use essentially this change in foreign scientist and engineer as the driver of this effect. Obviously, we need to worry uh, about, uh, when we estimate this, about the endogeneity. There are a bunch of uh, uh, reasons why scientists and engineers go in a city which are correlated with the determinant of economic growth. And uh, um, uh, in this sense, let me talk a little bit about the H-1B visa program, which is uh, uh, the program that uh, we use in order to generate this policy-driven uh, increase in scientists and engineers. The H-1B visa program was introduced in 1990, and I'm going to show it has varied over time. Its total amount has varied over time. Um, mainly driven by uh, very short-term policy concern. September 11 dropped, uh, caused a, a decrease. The, uh, the expansion of high tech caused an increase. Uh, and uh, um, this is a large and important program. And 80%, uh, if you look at the data of people who came in with an H-1B visa, which in general could be given to any highly educated, but 80% of that ended up in jobs which are in science and engineering, science and technology. The other interesting thing of this type of visa is that the participation rate of different nationality into it, so the visa by nationality given, is incredibly different and differentiated and varies a lot over here. The Indians have always been a very big chunk of this, but for instance, Europeans have been a big chunk but decreasing over time. Chinese have been a smallish chunk but strongly increasing over time. And people from the Americas, the rest of the American, has been also smallish but increasing. This variation in visa by nationality is what will give us uh, really power to identify this shock across the cities. Here you observe in just the sheer numbers the cap of the H-1B and the actual number of H-1B every year. And you notice variation of the cap up and down. You also notice that uh, uh, up to this point, uh, the number of actual visa was below the cap. This is a little extra, which was gained from uh, uh, reusing the visa from the past. And then after this period, though, there is a, a non-profit research center can be exempt of the cap. So that's why you see that uh, uh, is higher. So the way in which we're going to construct this, uh, uh, this change in scientist and engineer, which is driven by the H-1B policy, consider the dependence of a city in the United States in 1980 on foreign scientists and engineers. So for each city, we construct what is the number of scientists and engineers who were foreign-born for each a nationality out of 14, and the 14 grouping of nationalities described in the paper. And we could define this as the dependence of the one CTC on foreign born. And then we're going to use the aggregate variation of scientist and engineer for the special nationality N uh, uh, constructed by using the total number of H-1B visa which were attributed to that nationality. Uh, so we're going to construct a growth factor of, say, Indian scientists and engineers in total through H-1B visa, a growth factor for Chinese, a growth factor for European, and so on. So this is an aggregate influence. This aggregate variable was mostly affected by the variation of the H-1B across nationality and over time. And then we attribute or impute back, uh, we attribute this growth 
to the initial dependence of each city on scientists and engineers of their nationality. And we construct what we call an imputed growth of scientists and engineers across the cities based on the initial distribution and this factor growth, which is purely driven by the H1B variation. And then we take the variation of this imputed nibon of scientists over time. Now, why is this an interesting thing to do? First of all, this is really, in a sense, in number, how many more scientists and engineers there would be of each nationality if we think that the H1B visa is the main way of them to let in to let them in. Uh, the second interesting thing is that we are relying only on the distribution of these foreign scientists and engineers in 1980. Uh, and uh, we want, uh, and not on the people who came into the specific city driven by uh, uh, shocks or technological growth or, or uh, 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 economic condition after that. Uh, I'm going to argue in a second that uh, the distribution of foreign scientists and engineers in 1980 was very little correlated with the productivity and industrial structure of the city in 1980, but was very largely correlated with the presence of foreign born in general in a city in 1980. And that's important because in a sense, uh, this is a city which received a lot of foreign born engineers were not necessarily those who did a lot of R&D in 1980. But then, because of the scientists and engineers, they've been pushed much more into this uh, technology and innovation. And that's uh, an important thing. So who are scientists and engineers? Uh, we define them based by occupation. And we have three different definitions because we, there is not quite official from broader to uh, uh, stricter. But in one way, uh, we want to define people who actually, in their occupation, do science and engineering. And so we use this uh, ONET uh, uh, database of the Bureau of Labor Statistics that, that, says, that says, for each job, how intensively you use a bunch of different skills. And we use the jobs, the occupation, among 333 occupations that use these four skills the most intensely of all. Uh, so we use a definition that cuts uh, the top 10% uh, occupation in terms of use of these skills. And then we also restrict sometimes uh, this definition to be only the college educated in these occupations. And these are the occupations that come out as a scientist and engineer. And if you go and look at them, they are pro what we consider scientists, medical scientists, uh, engineers, uh, with maybe some little uh, variation. But this seems to be a pretty credible uh, list. This is out of 333 uh, occupations that we use. So um, the data that we use to do this are all from the American or from the US census, uh, from the microdata from the US census. The data on the H1B are from the Department of State. And then, as I told you, we use ONET to define what, which one of these uh, occupations are uh, science and engineering. Um, the analysis on Canada, which I will not talk too much about, we, is done uh, with the uh, census, uh, Canadian census data. So just to give you an idea of how important are foreign born among scientists and engineers in the United States, this is the percentage of scientists and engineers in the, uh, as, in the as, as percentage of the employment in the United States. So you see that scientists and engineers are a small fraction. If you are used to the data on people working in R&D in the United States, it's not very different from this, but they are growing. And this is the same percentage, so percentage of total employment who are foreign scientists and engineers. First of all, you see that in 1980, the, the uh, relative, so the, the percentage of foreign, foreign born were a little bit over 10% 
of the total number of uh, uh, scientists and engineers. But by 2010, one-fourth of them uh, is foreign-born. And more interestingly, even if you look at the growth in this number from in the 90s and even more in the 2000s, in the 2000s, because of the huge deep recession here, this number grow much more slowly. Uh, if you look at the growth, essentially the growth in the 2000s, which is a 0.2 percentage point, is all due to uh, foreign-born. And so not only they're important, but in growth, which is what we're going to exploit, how many more there are, the foreign-born played a huge uh, role. So uh, one thing I want to show you, and again, the econometrics then goes a little bit more in detail in the paper, is that city with the highest foreign-born science and engineering dependence in 1980 were not the city which had a large, in general, science and, engineer, science and engineering dependence. And uh, I'm gonna, uh, uh, but they were much more affected by the presence of enclave of immigrants. Uh, the reason is, uh, if you think about that, if you look at the list of the city that they didn't put in there, is that uh, the, research and in, uh, the research and development in the 1980s was heavily concentrated in military, chemistry, petrochemical, chemical, more standard in a sort of traditional industry, uh, industrial sector, which were uh, booming and very important. However, most of the scientists, uh, foreign science and engineer, fueled the next, if you like, technological cycle, which was the information and communication technology. So in 1980, cities which were doing a lot of science and technology, had a lot of native scientists and engineers, but didn't have very many foreign. So this is the correlation in 1980 between the dependence of a city on native scientists and engineers and foreign scientists and engineers. Essentially, there is no correlation at all. This is negative. If you put a standard error, it's non-significant. However, if you look at how scientists and engineer dependence is correlated to just the share of foreign-born in the city, this is a much more clear and tighter relationship. So scientists and engineers happen to be where people of their nationality were, which is, we argue with and then we test, something relatively orthogonal to what happened to technology, innovation, and productivity in the following years to the city. So uh, what we do is, uh, uh, first thing, we try to see if this constructed policy variable, so the inflow, inflow of scientists and engineers purely constructed using this method of H1B visa uh, uh, attributed across city, is a good predictor for how many actual scientists and engineers from abroad were in the city. As I told you, uh, H1B is not the only way for foreigners to come in, not even for foreign scientists, so this could be imperfect. Second, there could be many other reasons, endogenous, uh, not policy driven, but because of the city success that attract foreign engineers. So we want to see that our policy constructed variable has a bite on the actual increase in foreign born. And here is, uh, this is, these are many specifications always of this estimate B1, which uh, if it's a significant positive means that there is a significant uh, strong effect of the policy on the actual. Um, uh, done in many different ways. Here is uh, uh, inclu uh, including progressively uh, fixed effect. First, uh, no metro area fixed effect, then state fixed effect, then, uh, sorry, mm, uh, this, this is with state fixed effect, uh, one is with metro area fixed effect. Uh, this is uh, to see if they affect actually the total scientist and engineer, not just this policy variable didn't just drive the number of 
foreign scientists and engineers, but it affected the total. Why? Well, because a big chunk of the growth in the total was due to foreign uh, 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 scientists and engineers. And then using a slightly different definition and uh, um, using two slightly different definitions. And also here, moving back the starting point to calculate the percentage of immigrant uh, in the city in 1970. Uh, some people say, well, in the 1980 already there were some computer around, maybe information technology was already there. And then excluding the Indians, which are such a big uh, block. So the idea, however, is that these policy variables seem to predict quite well how many foreign scientists and engineers end up in each of these 219 cities. Does not seem to be correlated with the intensity of the R&D in 1980 for the city. And so it's hard to say that it's just picking up cities which were doing a research and continue to do this. Uh, and uh, uh, is robust to a series of inclusion of uh, uh, controls. Now, the key, uh, uh, the key results that I'm going to present, which are the one that I uh, presented. So in a sense, what I showed you so far is like the first stage of our experiment, see if the policy predicted the number of scientists and engineers. But what we're interested in is uh, seeing whether the scientists and engineers affect what? Affect outcomes, which are the growth of employment and wages for native group X, where X is college educated or non-college educated in CTC. And as you see, there is a city effect. There is a time effect. There are other controls I will show you, I will talk a little bit about, which control for the industrial structure, for the college enrollment uh, of uh, native. Uh, and uh, so we use this to see if this effect is there. Again, big table, but all the lines are the same. And I'm going to tell you what each coefficient is. These are just different specification with different imputation, different definition. But let's look at the first line. The first coefficient is the impact of a foreign-born engineer on the wage of college educated in the city. The second is the impact on the wage of non-college educated. The third is the impact on employment of college educated in the city. And the third is the impact on non-college educated. By the way, the left-hand side variable is only, only native workers. So you're not including the immigrants that come in. They are kind of the shock to the local economy. And then you look at how native respond. What you observe across is that the effect is always positive, significant, and basically around five, the estimate for the effect on the wage of college educated, and mostly positive and not always significant, though, uh, on employment. So if you back up, if you put this in a simple model of product production across the cities, uh, this uh, positive effect on employment and positive effect on wages gives you an effect, a positive effect on productivity of this group. However, the effect is mainly on highly educated. On less educated, there is not much. And so if you back up a productivity effect, you also back up the fact that this productivity effect was quite skill biased, it was strong, it was not negative, actually, on the less educated. There are some negative point estimates there which are not significant, but was certainly positive on the highly skilled. So this effect on the wages is always robust, strong, and significant, and it seems to identify that. Let me point out one thing. The last one is the OLS regression. What you can appreciate is how your, our instrument, maybe, of course, uh, you know, the, the exclusion restriction is where everybody will have uh, stuff to say about the instrument. But one thing that the instrument do, which is very clear, is they correct a very clear upward bias in the effect of scientists and engineers across the board. This is the boom city effect. City which grew attracted more scientists and engineers and all grew, grew employment of all groups and grew uh, wage of all groups. But if you only isolate the policy driven, which is specifically for H1P, you only are left with the effect on actually the highly educated. 
Um, uh, now, uh, maybe non-college educated is a coarse measure among non-college educated uh, who did some people fare better or not. And so in this next table, we're going to split uh, we're going to split the, uh, the effect on non-college educated between people who had high school degree and people who were dropout from high school. Now, for the United States, this split doesn't seem to uh, generate any particular difference. The reason we do this, and I'm going to say in Canada that makes a little bit of a difference, is that there is a labor market literature that says that really the way in which productivity has been growing in the last 20 years is not only that the high end of the, skill, uh, of the skill group has been benefited, but that also the low end has had a relatively quick, at least growth in employment, not in wages. And there is a shallowing, there is a, 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 a sort of a shrinking of the middle part. The skills which were used in the middle part are being mechanized, technologized, in part also because of the innovation that these people bring in. And so we wanted to see if the less educated were, gonna, were affected more uh, or, or were not affected negatively or they had a positive effect. In the United States, this effect is not very clear. I'm going to show you that in Canada there is a little bit of that. But this is another kind of interesting effect that we have here, which is now it's true that uh, um, uh, um, in general, highly educated seem to gain in terms of wages. And in terms of employment, their effect seems to be positive but not significant. What if we split the native depending on the sector where, where they were? Well, if you do that, we observe, and we only look here at the employment effect. The wage effect on this sector are always positive. But here, the employment effect, remember, in aggregate, the employment effect on highly educated, which were these, were quite, sometimes positive, but quite weak. But if you split across the sector, you find this interesting effect, which is the employment of highly educated seems to go up significantly in the private, high human capital intensive sector. So more scientists and engineers seems to have increased the productivity in particular of these sectors, while in either uh, low human capital sector or in the public sector that arguably may not respond very much to this parliament incentive, there is not this reallocation and this effect. Again, these effects are not huge and they're around, again, only on employment of highly educated. If you do it in unemployment overall, you find the less of this effect. Um, uh, these are the effects on Canada. Yes, perfect. Uh, these are the effects on Canada. And on Canada, you observe exactly the same pattern as in the United States. The uh, effects are strong and significant on the highly skilled, but much less significant on employment in general and on the wage of non-college educated. However, in Canada, if you split the non-college educated, this is also the effect of an increase of foreign scientists and engineers by 1% of total employment will increase the wage of, no, of college educated in Canada by 5.5 percentage points. Um, if you split, however, in Canada, um, if you split in Canada the effect on non-college educated between people who have a high school degree and people who are drop out in high school, you, you observe this kind of interesting effect that uh, although the overall impact of this group is positive uh, and, and not significant in aggregate, when you split, there seems to be actually a somewhat positive effect uh, in wage and in productivity at the low end of the spectrum. Again, with the idea that uh, high, uh, so there are several theories of why this is going on. 
on. One is that the scientists and engineers, by bringing innovation, innovative technology, they have increased the productivity of high-skilled, decreased the productivity or left and changed the productivity of people who were doing clerical routine work. But at the low end of the spectrum, people still need and still demand the gardener, the, uh, the assistant for their, the babysitter, those people. And these people with no high school degree are typically in more manual jobs than maybe the increasing income of the high uh, educated increased demand for. So this is something we don't explore very much in this paper, but uh, I think is interesting to think. Two more things. One is, what about the industrial composition of a city? This has been considered as a very important driver of growth. So what we do is we construct what are called Baltic uh, instrument or Baltic uh, measure of the increase in wage and employment. Essentially, these indices are, look at the composition by industry across uh, uh, a lot of them, 243 industry in 1980, and attach to each industry the employment and wage growth that it had nationally construct this index, this index measure by how much the city would have grown in terms of wage and employment if, the, if just based on the composition of industry in 1980. Uh, and then we also, this is one, another thing that we look is college enrollment. How much college enrollment lagged five or 10 years has affected the productivity of cities. So what happens if you include this control, if you still look at the H1B given, but then you include this industry-predicted employment growth? And these are the effect on college-educated wage, non-college-educated wage, college-educated employment, and non-college. First of all, the effect of the foreign-born stays exactly as before, is not very much affected. And what you find is that, interestingly, the industrial composition of the city seems to affect much more how employment for non-college educated, and maybe a little wage, grew than not for college educated. So it looks like the industrial composition of a city seems to have an important effect in driving the growth of employment, especially for non-college educated. But in terms of growth of productivity of highly educated, still, it seems that, and wage, still it seems that the H1B visa is very important. What if you put lagged and uh, um, college enrollment rate? There is a long literature that says that local human capital externality are important. And then that literature struggle with how to have an exogenous shock to human capital across the city to identify this. Um, so what we did, by no means, this will withstand an incredibly close scrutiny, but we thought, well, enrollment in college in that city 10 years before are a little bit of a predictor of how many college educated you may have. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, endogeneity is not killed that way, but at least gives us an idea. On the other hand, college educated are mobile, so there are a lot of publications that says the best thing is not to attract good university people. Graduate, uh, uh, sorry, if you want to retain the graduate, is to attract good industry because uh, graduates go wherever the industries are. Uh, what we find is that even if you control for that, the foreign-born still has this impact, and attracting or having a lot of college graduates still also seems to have an impact, um, positive on everything, but the significance of everything really there is not incredibly strong. So um, uh, um, one, one last thing that I say in this last minute before, too, is um, what, we were not very happy with the idea that industry didn't matter for the growth uh, in uh, uh, productivity of highly skilled because in our mind, in all our mind is that yes, these people, maybe foreign born some, they're scientists, but a lot of them are in the computer sector. So what we thought is that, well, maybe the, for, the inflow of foreign born is very important, but the particular growth of productivity in cities that have foreign born scientists 
and combined with fast-growing a good industry. So in this, uh, we include the H-1B-driven incre increase in scientists and engineers, the industry predicted in growth in employment, and then we interact. So this interaction says is one for industry which have a fast wage and employment growth, many of which are the high tech, interacted with having many immigrants. And you see that now the whole positive coefficient on foreign-born comes from generating growth in wages in cities which have a lot of foreign born, but also are at the top of the distribution in terms of attracting industry who grow fast and have a fast employment uh, growth. When we do the same interacting with the number of college educated people, we don't find the same strength of interaction. So in a sense, if you like, industry structure seems to be quite complementary to the productivity effect of uh, a, a high-skilled immigrant, but the college enrollment five years before does not seem to be complementary to that. It doesn't have an enhanced effect. So just a couple of numbers to fix the thing, and then I'm done. So if you think of uh, this effect, we did a couple of experiments. One is, uh, what if a city will push up uh, the computer industry uh, uh, share of employment from 1.5, which is the, average na uh, uh, the national average in 1905, to the level of Silicon Valley, which was 10% of the employment in 1919 Silicon Valley, San Jose metropolitan area, was uh, a scientist and engineer. How much this uh, will affect the growth of wage and the growth of uh, employment based on our estimate. And based on our estimate, that industrial structure change will, yes, uh, grow wages, but mostly of non-college educated by 1.3 and employment by 3%. On the other hand, if you increase the percentage of H1B growth from the average to the level of San Jose, so if you think that San Jose was lucky because it had this community of foreign-born and then got a lot of them, then this change will generate an increase in the wage growth of the college educated. So again, you see both important. This mostly focused on the effect on the skill bias, if you want more, and then more focused on a general effect in employment and growth. And in aggregate, again, if you take the H1B inflow, so the experiment we did is a, a look at the total inflow of H1B and take this city-estimated coefficient, do a leap of faith, and say that these are also the elasticity uh, of uh, national wages, which may be an underestimate or an overestimate for, and uh, see how much of the growth in uh, wages of college-educated worker is due to the inflow of H1B, the total growth of college-educated in real terms uh, was 13% over this period, 3.4 was due. So one-third, one-quarter to one-third of that growth was due to this inflow of H1B. And then, just to extend, now assume that the current reform is passed. The current reform moves the cap from 65 to 115, so increases 50,000, uh, introduces 50,000 more. These convert it into a percentage of current employment and look at the effect. This will produce an extra effect so that uh, the wages of college educated will be 1.8 point larger um, uh, after the next 20 years of growth. So, um, Again, is an effect uh, smaller than the 3.4 uh, before because you're only increasing it by half what it was. And uh, I think in the, in the paper calculate that this corresponds to $1,500 per person uh, higher. Uh, yes, $1,500 per college educated more uh, over this period. So concluding, uh, we think that, foreign si that scientists and engineers could be a formidable uh, resource for economic growth. 
they are very mobile across country. And so it looks like the US, uh, the, the limit that the US is imposing is uh, biting on the number that can come in. By the way, the last H1B visa, uh, visa um, auction or visa uh, assignment, which was done in April, had this cap of 65,000 people. And in the first four days, this is supposed to go for the whole year, in the first four days of the auction, they were all gone, this H1B uh, visa. So clearly there is a, some cap, but we have asked what if we relax this a little bit, what effect we will have on productivity and on wage growth. And it seems that if the local economy productivity growth is an indicator of what this will do to productivity, there are potentially some good long run uh, gains. By the, by the way, just to plug in in general sort of the immigration debate in this, I think that this long run effect of immigration on productivity efficiency and other things are very understudied relative to the standard labor demand, labor supply effect, but in the long run, maybe order of magnitude larger. So I think that this is the right thing or right way to start debating the immigration approach. And I'm done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Giovanni. Um, I'm glad to hear confirmed what was always expected, which is that I, as an H1B visa holder, and responsible for about 10% of US GDP. Um, Danny, go ahead. So uh, thank you so much for having me and for uh, putting together the conference, Jeff. And thank you, Giovanni and Chad, for a very interesting paper. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, try to keep my comments brief. Uh, this control that had you. Oh no. Ah, okay. So, um, so this touches on a, a big question uh, on which there's a long literature. It's how does immigration or how does an increase in the labor supply affect wages? And there are really three possible answers to that question. <laughs> <laughs> One is that wages might fall. Uh, and uh, this could be because there's a fixed factor in production or because there are differentiated goods. And so when you increase the supply, prices might fall. There's been a, a lot of literature on this. Uh, George Borjas is associated with this. Daron uh, Asimoglu and David Otter have a paper about increases in female labor supply uh, and looking at how wages respond to increased labor supply, different empirical papers. I think the, uh, the benchmark model is to assume that wages are flat or that in some long run there's constant returns to scale. There's also a literature um, uh, about how wages might rise in response to the supply increase, either through agglomerations or productivity spillovers. This touches on some work by Giles Duranton and Jaffe and others. Um, what this paper does, uh, which is very nice, is focus on those immigrants most likely to fall into this last category. So if you thought that there was uh, going to be a big productivity gain or agglomeration or some sort of spillover, positive spillover from immigration, you seems most natural to think that that would come from scientists and engineers. Uh, to, to keep things brief, I, I'm not going to go in, uh, review their paper in, in terms of summarizing the results that much, but the basic approach is, is to compare wage growth and migration flows across cities over time, and they find very large positive externalities. So actually, this is, uh, in some sense, a comment one. The magnitudes uh, are somewhat, somewhat tricky to us. So I tried to back out so that, uh, exactly the dollar increase per immigrant. But um, they do some calculations. So in-migration of uh, 0.6 percentage points of the workforce uh, raised wage growth for college-educated workers over the period by three percentage points. So uh, maybe it's hard to parse those numbers. Uh, 
I came up when I tried to do it, something like the annual externality per scientist, somewhere between $50,000 to $200,000 per year, which is very big. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, this is potentially a, a very uh, big part of uh, what's been happening, what happens with productivity. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's a really nice to, to focus on uh, the, the case where this agglomeration spillover is most likely to be true, and then they find very uh, big and confirmatory results. So um, in order to generate these estimates, uh, you face two challenges, and I'll talk about them in turn. The first is coming up with a way to define science and technology workers or scientists and engineers, and then to address the omitted variable bias problem that uh, foreign scientists and engineers are not randomly distributed. People move to regions for, certain, uh, for different reasons, and you, you want to uh, find random variation that won't be correlated with other determinants of wage growth. So Giovanni talked a little bit about identifying scientists and engineers, and they take two or three different approaches, actually. They use ONET skill categories uh, to define jobs that work in math, science, and technology. Um, they take the same set of those workers that uh, have college degrees, and then they use a, another classification involving uh, STEM college majors and the prevalence across workforce. So this is the kind of this is the part of the paper you usually kind of skip through, and you think, okay, they're doing a good job. And then you read their list of scientists and engineers; it, it seems like a, it's isolating the right uh, professions. But then, and Giovanni showed us this graph. Um, this is the correlation between, in 1980, native scientists and engineers and foreign scientists and engineers. It's actually, they find no relationship, or, or uh, if anything, a mildly negative relationship. And so when I saw this, this I, I thought this was pretty surprising, especially because we know that later, the foreign scientists in 1980 is going to be correlated with H-1B visa granting and people moving there. Um, you know, I looked this up online, so I take it with a grain of salt, but I, and Microsoft is something like the second or third largest um, H-1B grantor. Uh, most of those are coming in Redmond. Between Microsoft, Google, Intel, IBM, and Oracle, that's 8% of all H-1B visas. And these are, you know, it's hard to think of Seattle and uh, San Francisco as places that had few native or fewer than average native scientists. So I was a little bit surprised at this. So I tried to recreate this and uh, admittedly, you know, I did, I'm sure I did a much worse job. I took uh, occupation codes in, uh, from the 1990 occupation codes this list year. I recreated native science and engineers in 1980 and foreign science and engineers in 1980. Now, the way I did it was very ad hoc. So this is not to say that this is better. This is assuredly worse, both in execution and in, con in, in actually measuring where it's native science and engineers. So uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that this positive correlation is right, but I'm saying this is what I expected. Uh, and this is what the rough cut gave me. And so I think it was interesting to think about how robust is this idea that um, there really is no relationship between uh, total population in science and engineering and the foreign share. Uh, or, at, or at least this intuition, I think more should be done to address this intuition that places where there are lots of, uh, you know, so there are some scientific cities, Boston is a scientific cities, and there'll be lots of foreign and uh, native scientists. Okay, so if, uh, if challenge one is to identify um, STEM workers, challenge two is to address the omitted variable bias problem. So like I said before, we think that foreign scientists are going to move to places uh, that, that uh, you know, the reason they move to an IV, that we, we are worried that foreign scientists are going to move to places that are growing or booming, right? Uh, some places are, are experiencing this big uh, growth for other reasons, and people will move there for, for those reasons. And so the idea in this paper, which is a clever one, 
is to IV for the actual growth in science and technology, uh, scientists, foreign scientists, using the initial share of scientists in each nationality in each place and national growth in that, uh, within that nationality. So it, it, uh, initially you have a very large Italian community and then there are, there's a large growth in Italian scientists over this time, that's gonna be the instrument. And that the, for this instrument to produce random variation in foreign scientists and engineers, for it to recover random variation, it relies on two hypotheses. One, that these aggregate flows, these national flows, that the number of Itali the total number of Italians moving is orthogonal to uh, local conditions or is, is really being driven by exogenous policy decisions. And the second hypothesis is that these initial patterns are not otherwise correlated with future shocks. So uh, again, I'll take these in turn, possibly. Uh, aha. Okay, so this is the, uh, the figure you, so I am not otherwise an expert on H1B visas, but this is the, the figure from the, the, the paper where they plot here is a policy, the cap on H1B visas, and then the outcome here is the total number of uh, H1B visas granted. And uh, my understanding from, from the paper and, and from reading a bit about this is that up until sort of 2004, this cap is not really driving, this policy decision is not really driving the number of visas being granted. So for there are periods here where the number of visas fall below the cap and here in the recession. And so for a big part of the sample, it's unclear if it's the if the flows are being driven by the policy or if the flows or you know to what extent the policy is actually driving the flows, you know, up until 2004. And the reason that's a problem is because if the policy isn't driving the flows, we even people are moving to based on local conditions, right? We we fall back into this reverse causality trap. So, you know, suppose Detroit initially has a large Arab population. If wages are uh, falling in Detroit and the inflow of Arab scientists and uh, engineers is smaller than expected, if that's being driven by policy, then causality seems clear. If policy isn't the binding constraint, causality seems less clear. Maybe other shocks going on in Detroit is deterring people from moving there, as opposed to people moving there is dragging down growth in Detroit. Um, okay. So uh, the second hypothesis, uh, so even if the flows are being driven by policy decisions, and I think that's fairly straightforward to do, to instrument with the cap or some other policy decision, the second hypothesis is that these initial patterns are not otherwise correlated with future technological change or shocks. So um, if there's another shock that's going to be correlated with this initial pattern, uh, that that could be what's driving differences in wage growth as opposed to the differences in migration uh, by foreign scientists. And so uh, as a first check, you would want to see, well, you, you could ask, right, are these uh, initial patterns randomly distributed? So uh, my measure is not a good one to use in this case because we already saw that the, my measure of foreign science engineers does not correlate uh, in the same way with different outcomes. But uh, I do note in the paper, there's a strong relationship between the percentage that's foreign born and the percentage uh, of foreign scientists and engineers. So even if I can't replicate the y-axis here, the percentage of foreign engineers, I probably should do a reasonably good job replicating the percentage of people who are foreign born. That seems uh, less uh, difficult to measure. And so um, if you plot something like the percentage foreign born in 1980, uh, which is going to be in the top two figures, the percentage foreign born uh, in 1980, and then the y-axis in this top quadrant, so I can't point to it, is share BA, which is cut off by the, the line, 
and uh, this is uh, income here across cities. Again, you see that uh, cities that had a big foreign-born population in 1980 had more college degrees, had higher income. Instead of using total foreign-born, you could do percentage-born in China and India. That's also going to be very predictive of H-1B visas, since most of those visas are going to India. Um, you can get strong relationships between share BA and income. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. So you don't need these initial patterns to be randomly distributed, right? We just need them not to be correlated with other future shocks. So the, the issue is that we know that college-educated workers or richer places, these, these places were getting different shocks over the whole period. So skilled bias technological change, competition from China, other things are changing differentially across education groups after 1980. So if there's this correlation, you want to be, you, you need to really pin the uh, identification down. So it's not, uh, it could be that an aggregate there, you know, places that are, have lots of foreign scientists moving in are higher educated, and higher educated people face perhaps less competition from China, but it's not obvious that the timing will precisely overlap. So you could still identify this by picking apart, by, by really focusing within a city at changes over time, uh, as opposed to across cities where we're more worried about this correlation in initial patterns, some places are better educated, some places are richer. So to do that, to make sure you're focusing on within city comparisons, so you're not picking up the non-random distribution of initial settlement patterns, you want to make sure that you have fixed effects in all the regressions, not just in uh, one, a small number of robustness checks, and also that the observations cover the same length of time and a few other econometric uh, wrinkles that I think Jeff will talk more about. Okay, um, so, so I, this is not to say that, all right, there's uh, never national experiments. I think there are, and you pointed to after 9-11, some interesting national experiments here where you might be able to piece out differences in those. So I have a, a few uh, minor comments, uh, which I think, uh, you know, uh, are useful to think about, but, but don't really change sort of, I think, the really big picture interesting idea. Um, one is, and you talked a little bit about the OLS and IB, sort of the key uh, relationship here in the paper is that uh, places that are getting more foreign scientists and engineers uh, for random reasons are experiencing faster wage growth. And the assumption, the reason you're moving to IB is that otherwise, if you just look at the uh, OLS relationship, places that are getting more foreign scientists and engineers would be experiencing even faster wage growth because those foreign scientists and engineers will be moving to booming places, and you pick up both the boom and the migration. And that's why you've moved to IB to get this uh, exogenous part. So you'd expect that the OLS estimate would be bigger than the IB on this sort of key relationship, and it comes out in this relationship smaller, which is a little bit puzzling. Um, you'd want to worry about other migration, and also, uh, I was surprised by the use of college attainment instead of college enrollment. So uh, I don't know how, true, how different those things are uh, in aggregate, but I grew up in Cleveland, and everyone I went to school with went to Ohio State in Columbus. And so if you took what percentage of uh, 18 to 22 year olds are enrolled in college, Columbus looks much more educated than Cleveland. And I'm not sure that, I think that difference in, it looks bigger than the college attainment coming, coming out. So I wonder if some of the minor effects that you pick up there uh, might be coming from noise in that. Um, so to, to and I promise to be brief, I think I'm doing good. Yeah. Uh, um, I wanted to, to pose some of the bigger picture questions. So uh, what exactly, it, so this paper I think is, is 
dealing with a really important issue. It's got uh, nice identification and, and uh, is picking up uh, really big effects. So it sort of naturally poses the question, what's going on? How are we getting these really big effects? Um, as much as I love Stan, is he really generating $50,000 of or $200,000 of externality per year? And so I, I, I want to know, you know, is this effect, are these effects really, or, or more specifically, is he generating that in DC as opposed to national, right? So, so uh, maybe I... That, yeah, that, that, that's the important question. Right. Well, so we're, we're identifying these effects locally, and how much of this is really migration across cities? So maybe uh, foreign scientists are drawing in uh, workers from, from elsewhere, and how much is this is shifting productivity as opposed to increasing productivity? And that's a difficult question to answer, but getting at the mechanism there, I think, would really help, uh, help pull together the results. Uh, I think also, uh, since you've used some of these estimates to ballpark uh, gains at the national level, or, or at least think about these effects of maybe applying uh, more broadly and not some uh, just local uh, shifting, uh, we might want to think about the international effect, right? So if there's these really these enormous externalities, and maybe this is a weird, Cato is a weird place to think about this, but there's really these very large externalities for scientists and engineers. Maybe uh, America is doing a huge disservice to India by uh, from, uh, enabling this big brain drain. So you, you, I'll let that, uh, well, this is my bad joke, but uh, so you might worry that uh, India wouldn't have the same spillovers, but you've already shown us that even in a, a poorly developed country like Canada. There are these enormous equivalent spillovers. So, uh, so, so I, I, I would think if these effects are, are as large uh, as we're picking up, that, that this is something to, to think about. All right, so I think that this is a really important question, both for policy, and you very clearly framed it in terms of policy, but as somebody who's tried to think about local labor markets, this is a big question for urban economics. Uh, if the, if, it's possible that adding, you know, if labor demand curves don't serve downward, if they actually, you know, they might actually slope upward so that product, you know, when you add workers, wages might go up. Uh, even for some subset of workers, that's a pretty interesting case and I, I think uh, very interesting for theory as well as policy. I have some concerns about exactly how you measure it or exactly you picking up what exactly uh, the way you set up the instrument, but I think all of these are very uh, reasonably easy to address. So it's possible to use more of the policy variation. It's possible to show robustness to some things. And so I think uh, this is a really nice paper. I really enjoyed uh, reading it. And thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Nanny. Um, Jeff, are you ready? Sure. Are they ready for me? <laughs> No, <laughs> they are not. So uh, I'm Joe Smith from University of Michigan. Go blue! Um, we still miss you. We miss the other Jeff. Uh, used to be there, like Jeff, I guess. Uh, this is a this is um, 
It's an important topic, and it's an interesting paper, and I was glad to read it. This is not a literature I normally play in as a producer. I am an occasional consumer, as you will see from some of the references along the way. Uh, I'm going to kind of divide my remarks uh, into two parts. Uh, I'm going to start out, well, I guess three parts, sort of a summary, then some kind of big picture comments, stepping outside the framework that's adopted by the authors and thinking about other possible frameworks within, within which to address this question. And then I'll offer a bunch of kind of within, you know, say we want to do it this way, some within framework comments uh, about how to think about what they did. So what do they want to do? Well, you know this already. They want to look at the effect of foreign scientists and engineers. We're all about scientists and engineers, STEM, STEM, STEM. Everybody likes STEM. NSF has a whole separate grant program for the science of science that, that uh, generates lots of papers about STEM. Do we have enough STEM? How, to, how about women in STEM, everybody else in STEM? Uh, I will confess, I am a, somewhat of a contrarian uh, on, on the, in this regard. Uh, and I guess in that sense, somewhat, uh, Dan Black and I are in a slow way working on a paper on, uh, that, that's going to try to take on this literature and argue that, uh, that maybe we don't actually have too many scientists, in, or maybe we don't actually have a shortage of scientists and engineers. Um, but so that's my, my coming into this. Um, what, is the, what is the setup here? Right? We have this policy, which is how many H-1B people do we let in? It's a national level policy, right? So one way to analyze this policy, which I don't think anybody in literature has done, actually, but is a natural way, would be to use time series analysis. Right? We've got a nas the national level policy. That's the treated unit is the US. And each year, we have a dose of the treatment, which is the number of H1B visas we let in. And you could sort of do time series stuff uh, to try to tease out an impact of that national level treatment on national level economic outcomes. Now, labor economists, um, that's what I'm one of those, are sort of notoriously suspicious of time series analysis. Uh, and and um, and for whatever reason, it hasn't been widely used in this, in this literature. Uh, so instead, what we want to do is we want to, we want to use the tools that we're familiar with. We want to use panel data models, or we want to use uh, cross-sectional models. We're going to use panel data models here. That means we've got to drill down to a finer level of analysis. And so the level of analysis in this paper, and indeed in much of this literature, is local labor markets somehow defined, usually to de defined as some geographic uh, zone that may or may not actually represent a labor market in the conceptual sense. But here we're using metropolitan statistical areas, things like that. And that's going to look like a local labor market, I think, reasonably enough. So now we're going to conceive of the treatment as, you know, at the national level, we move around the number of H-1B visas. And then that induces doses of H-1B visa recipients at the level of the local labor market. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that we might want to tell stories about the exogeneity of the national total, we don't think that the people who come in sort at random to the different local labor markets. And so we have an endogeneity problem. Economists are always all about endogeneity problems. I once saw a, uh, it was a little anecdote about, actually it was a book about like how to do things. And it was, it was like, how do you talk to economists at dinner parties? You get stuck next to one. And it said, you know, you, you ask them about their research and then you wait while they talk for five minutes and then you say, how did they solve, how did you solve the endogeneity problem? <laughs> uh, and that's sort of all you need to know to have that conversation. Anyway, what are they gonna try to do here? They're gonna try to find an instrument to solve their endogeneity problems. They need to find a variable that is correlated with the number of H1B holders that show up in a local labor market but not otherwise correlated with the kind of outcomes they want to look at, which is wages and employment of college-educated and non-college-educated natives. 
Uh, that's a tall order. What do they do? They do what's pretty standard in this literature, actually, uh, which is to recognize the fact that people who come from other countries tend to move to parts of the US where there's other people from the same country already. Uh, and there's lots of stories in both the sociology and economics literatures about why this might be true and how it plays out. And you hope that this sort of, well, I guess what we call nationalistic affinity is sort of unrelated to other things going on. And so they construct a measure of sort of in the past, how many people were there from different countries, who, and then they use that as the instrument. And we just heard a discussion of that, and I decided to leave that mainly to Danny to talk about the instrument uh, for good or ill. Okay. What I want you to take away from here is you know, we've drilled down to a local level. That gives us an endogeneity problem. We've tried to solve it with this instrument. And off we go. Off we go. And this is very standard stuff in, this, in the, sense, the general methodological sense. This kind of instrument, this drilling down to the local labor market level, and then the econometric framework using standard kind of panel data models. This, all, this is what this literature does for good or ill. And then they find big wage effects, as you've heard. Okay, uh, so I guess my first thought was uh, this, this paper, this literature brings out the, my structural side. So I have reduced form side and a structural side. Um, this paper, this literature brings out my structural side. And so I thought, well, what's the model? What's the model? I think, I think there is a model in the author's heads. Uh, and, it, and it comes out at various points in the paper. But it's, there's not a fully articulated written down model in the paper. And that's fine. Right? We don't need to replicate standard models in every paper. But I would have liked it better if the authors had sort of at least had a verbal section that said, here's the models in the literature that we're using to think about to, as a conceptual framework for interpreting our results. So here's a couple of, of models in the literature that you might use as conceptual frameworks to interpret these results. One is by my student, Andre Chathambouli, who's at the University of Cyprus. And it's a kind of search model, a sort of macro searchy model of immigration. And then there's this whole literature, and I just put up my colleague David Albui because he's the one that I talk about these things with. But there's a whole literature in sort of urban economics that focuses on models about equilibrium models of sorting of people across cities, where you've sort of got cities have amenities, cities have wages, and cities have rents, and sometimes they have more stuff. A lot of the frontier of that literature is sort of adding more things to this model. But in the basic class of models, that's what's going on. And then people sort. And at the margin, in each city, the marginal person is indifferent between that city and the next available city, indifferent in utility terms, not necessarily wage terms, because you've got rents moving around here, and you've got amenities moving around here, and there's compensating differences in all these things. That leads immediately to one remark that I'll make later on, is, is that if the wages that were, the wage effects here that we're measuring are, are going on in parallel with rent effects, that the sort of well-being effects that we're picking up may be very different than we're implicitly concluding from the wage effects. The general point here is that I think the paper would be a lot richer and a lot more effective if the authors were explicitly thinking about what they're doing and what they're finding in terms of one or both of these interpretive frameworks. Another thing that would be enriched, I think, is, and this was brought up a little bit by Danny, is this notion that we could, we could sort of tease out or go deeper into the mechanisms underlying some of these effects that are estimated. So for example, employment effects, as they are estimated here, could result from migration, and they could result from different educational choices by natives. So I put up a couple of references here. Brian Dena, PhD student at Michigan, now in Colorado, has a paper about domestic. So he's writing in the literature on this sort of you know, low-skill migrant 
effects, which is where most of the literature is, and argues that domestic welfare recipients move around in response to inflows of low-skilled migrants. Right? Or you can have changes in educational investments by natives. So this is Osborne Jackson's job market paper. Osborne Jackson is looking at how arrival of immigrants, many of whom go to college, it turns out, in the US, low-skilled immigrants, their kids go to college, they go to college. Do they affect, do they crowd out natives out of college? Well, that's important, too. Maybe we have so many foreign scientists and engineers that we're not just adding to some total that would have been unchanged without them. Maybe we're deterring domestic students from specializing in those fields, and maybe they go into other fields that are sort of more language dependent and things like that, where they have a comparative advantage over the non-native speakers. That would all be good. I've talked about that already. Other economic issues, those of you who know my work will know that uh, I am, to use Raquel's phrase, which I quite like, uh, a prisoner of my upbringing, uh, in the sense that I am all about heterogeneous treatment effects, heterogeneity in general. And I think there's issues to be had here. There's a couple ways to think about this. One is the sort of standard latish stuff. So late stands for local average treatment effect. The idea here would be some immigrants may have different effects than others. We are, this, this instrumental variable strategy is picking up the treatment effect of a particular category of immigrants, namely the ones whose destination is predicted by the historical ethnic enclaves. If that type of immigrant, the ones who are heavily influenced in their decision by where the people like them already are have different effects than the other immigrants, whose variation we are throwing away because we're concerned that it is endogenous, then the number we're getting is a very specialized, differently interpreted parameter than you would think from the common effect framework that is adopted in the paper. Uh, that's a subtle thing, but I think it's a thing that's worth talking about uh, and thinking about in the paper. Another literature, and this is a literature I have not read deeply in, my friend Dan Black uh, and his student, and Lowell Taylor, also his student, maybe it's just his student, I uh, have a nice paper in Jolly, kind of showing that the return, I put that in quotes because it's not really a return in the economic sense, but that's the misuse of language that's common in the labor literature. The return to schooling is very different across geographic areas. Well, that's, that's another kind of heterogeneous coefficient here, right? And now it's, it's, it's where, which geographic areas do the immigrants go to, and then they affect the you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we can think about that too. That's two ways to introduce heterogeneity into this framework, both of which I think would be interesting to at least think about. Uh, okay, Danny mentioned this, and I think this is really important, and I was surprised there wasn't more about it in the paper, which is what if the effect of immigrant science and engineers is partly a general effect, that they make everyone more productive in the entire U.S.? Certainly our host does here, our moderator Indeed. has that effect. Uh, if that's true, then the effects that are estimated in the paper, which are just these sort of localized effects, are a lower bound. Right? We already heard that the, gee, these effects are really big, but they're a lower bound if you take that story. If you think that the foreign science and engineering people are having big general effects to make everybody more productive, in this framework, those get sucked into the time indicators, right? in the coefficients on the year dummies. They're not in the estimate that we're presented with. So in that sense, it's a lower bound. But that makes me all the more worried that this is a really, really big effect. We're putting a lot of weight on scientists and engineers. They're wonderful people. I was one of the people in the Canadian data, probably. Right? I spent my first seven years in Canada. Uh, great stuff. I'm sure I added lots of externalities. But really, are we really, are really those people accounting for that much of the overall change in wages? I would have liked to see more of a case. Uh, it just didn't quite. Anyway. Okay. Applied econometric issues. That's what I'm supposed to do, I guess. I'm not going to do a lot of it. Uh, one thing. So this is a paper. Uh, Adamir was a. Actually, I was on his committee at Western Ontario. 
he has a nice paper with George Borjas in Jolly that I actually handled as editor. It's about the effects of measurement error in models of this type. So we're estimating all these fractions of people in local labor markets who are in different groups. Some of these samples are quite small. There may be a lot of measurement error in our ratios. That turns out to have implications for things as they detail in this paper. They also talk about ways to deal with this problem. Sarah Bond, student, graduate students even see. When I read this literature, it's because it's either I'm the editor or it's a student. Uh, Sarah Bond uh, was a graduate student at Maryland, who's now PPIC. Beth Sanders, my friend from grad school and former colleague, <laughs> have a paper where they take one of the analyses, uh, one of the Borjas papers, and basically show that the whole estimated coefficient essentially depends on two cells. Uh, so they kind of look at the influence function of the, of the observations when the regression context. Some of that here might be important to see if there's, I'm just kind of worried about outliers here. And I'm worried because they found outliers in this other paper. Now that was again a paper about low skill migration, doesn't have to be the same here, but I think it's worth tracking down their working paper and, uh, and trying to look at that stuff. Oh, Canada. I think I'm not Canadian. Some people think I'm Canadian. My first job was in Canada. My wife is imported from Canada. Uh, they tell me I'm an honorary Canadian. But I wanted to make one point that I didn't think was clear in the paper. So in the US, the term college is used as a generic term to refer both to two-year and four-year institutions. In Canada, college is not a generic term. In Canada, college just refers to the non four-year schools, university refers to the four-year schools. And so when we talk about college educated, you actually have to be very careful. College educated can mean one thing in the US, can mean another thing in Canada. I wasn't sure from the text exactly how similar the definitions were in Canada and the US. And it's important because in Canada, the fraction of people who go to non-four-year institutions and complete a degree is much higher than it is in the US. That's one of the distinctive features of the Canadian system, a smaller university sector more people going to vocationally oriented programs at schools that last two or three years. Uh, and I think that's, so there, there may be more, there, there's more to say about the difference between the US and Canada results. Bottom line, this is a challenging empirical problem. Uh, I am often saying that, uh, you know, in, in economics, if we sort of face this trade-off between quality of identification, that is how compelling is the evidence that we're able to provide, some things, some questions we can do random assignment experiments, and that's wonderful. Other questions, the, uh, the institutions or, or the data do not provide us with that kind of compelling variation. But oftentimes, the questions that we can answer with the random assignment are small. The questions that we would like to answer with the less compelling variation are large. You know, what's the effect of social security? That's a large question. Nobody ever randomly assigned social security. We have no experiment. Uh, we have before-after estimators, which are kind of depressing. This is one of those important questions where we don't have a lot of really compelling identification strategies. Some would say, well, you know, if you can't do an experiment, you can't do RD, you should walk away and stop. Uh, we just can't know those things. I think that's much too strong. I think we have to kind of calibrate, if you will, and say, well, if the question's really important, then we hold our nose and we try to do the best that we can do. And go forward and try to do different things and kind of triangulate and all that kind of stuff. I think this is one of those literatures. No paper in this literature is ever going to be really, really compelling in the way that some of the papers in the education literature are compelling. That doesn't mean we should stop. It means we should keep pushing and trying to do better. So I don't want to be seen as negative or saying the author should walk away from this. Uh, at the same time, my worries about this literature and much of the 
critique today was a worry about the literature, not about the specific paper. Uh, they didn't go away from reading this paper. So I still think there's, there's things to do. And uh, I would also say, I guess, that at some level, the policy conclusion kind of seems obvious without the paper. It's good to have the paper. And I think we want to be careful about making policy conclusions from theory. But if our world is we only care about the US, and economists, of course, have this annoying habit of saying we should care as much about people on one side of the arbitrary geographic boundary as we do on the other. That's not the way most voters think. Um, and certainly not the way most politicians think. Um, if we're in a world where only this matters and we're offered the opportunity to take somebody who embodies a whole bunch of human capital that was paid for by others, hard to see how that's going to be bad. Uh, I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very much. I think we're, we're ready for, the, uh, for questions from the floor now. Uh, a couple of things, please. Wait to be called on. And wait for the microphones. Everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your question. Also, uh, it would be great if you could announce your name and affiliation. I apologize. Yes, you do. <laughs> Giovanni would like to respond to uh, some of the comments first. Uh, Sorry. Just, yeah. Um, thank you for the, for the comments. Uh, and. Uh, just a few things that I think are um, um, important. Uh, so, yeah, obviously the identification is uh, uh, is the central problem here, uh, and um, I agree. We come from a well-established line of uh, of papers in this uh, in this literature. Um, so I actually uh, uh, say let me say a couple of things specific and uh, more general. Um, so about. So the definition of, uh, uh, of STEM, so we use three different definitions of STEM and we sort of go through the exercise. Uh, that initial correlation, it does vary actually, uh, depending on the definition of STEM that you get. So with some, uh, you do get uh, some positive effect. Um, in a longer version of this, uh, we included actually as a control the number of native scientists and engineers in 1980. And because we were worried about this correlation with income, we do everything in difference with a fixed effect and we control for the industrial structure and the college enrollment. Sort of, in a sense, our, our attitude is obviously there are gonna be omitted variables that we cannot control. Tell us where you think some of these effects come from. We're gonna either control or tackle that variable specifically. The two that came to mind which are more evident are the production sector structure of the city and the level of education. We use the enrollment rather than the attainment because that seems to us a more interesting policy variable. Of course, a lot of the enrolled we're gonna go elsewhere, but there is a lot of policy that says, let's bring in a good school here, while attracting, attracting the highly educated in general seem to us a little bit more uh, vague as a comparison. But obviously the, the, um, the effect, the, the number of people who are there is important. Uh, Two things about the size. Everybody kept saying these effects are huge, these effects are huge. These effects are not huge, really. I mean, depend on what literature you look at. If you are used to the labor literature that looks at this little triangle of welfare efficiency, which is 0.001 of the income, these are huge. But if you look at the R&D literature, 
these are people who work in technological innovation. If you take the whole labor and growth literature and you look at what part of the US GDP per capita growth is due to technological, to the technology part, uh, people will identify it with almost all, including the skill bias literature that says how much of this college educated premium is due to technological te skill bias technologies. Not doesn't seem to be trade very much. It doesn't seem to be minimum wage. A lot of it is technology. So uh, if you take this, one third of the scientists and engineers in the US are foreign born. In change, half of the growth of them has been foreign born. So in changes, how much are they responsible for the growth in productivity and uh, in wages? Well, we say between one-fifth and one-fourth. And so in that literature, we're right on the ball. There is a paper by Chad Jones that is called uh, Economic Growth in a World of Ideas that split down the very long-run economic growth into how much is due to capital, to innovation. And the increase of scientists and engineers is by far the biggest chunk. And that's where we, we go in. So it depends a little bit where you look at it. And then in the international comparison, again, we did Canada and the United States in spite of the joke on Canada. Canada is much closer to the technological frontier than Zimbabwe is. And our, <laughs> and our idea is that there could be actually a Pareto increasing I mean, or a massive gain in productivity because of some, maybe a few of these people in country where they are, uh, they are not able to benefit from the same technology and closeness to the frontier in terms of innovation. So it needs not be symmetric by any means. So if you take a person and you put it from a country from, with low productivity to a country with very high productivity, the income of that person goes up a lot. The spillover are there, but the income of the country where it comes from could be completely not affected uh, by that, uh, uh, you know, unless you have uh, um, uh, sort of other effects. So uh, on this, yes, but I agree with you. We need to explain a lot of this, a lot of the paper you cited actually. Our paper, we know you put up an agenda in which, uh, in a sense, uh, yeah, I have other four or five papers on this thing, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, I guess we will have to decide how much goes into this paper in terms of all the other effects, how much uh, goes into our just generic hand waving. But yeah, they're all very good points. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And now we are indeed ready for questions from the floor. I think that uh, looking at immigration of scientists and engineers without pairing it with the educational component uh, gives an incomplete picture because such a large percentage of the recipients of H-1Bs are educated at the graduate level and increasingly at the undergraduate and even high school level uh, in the United States. Uh, and I think uh, my university, Brandeis University, is typical of other universities in having had enrollment increase only slightly and enrollment of international students increase markedly over the last uh, 20 or 30 years and uh, much more in the last 10 years with the large supply of very able Chinese applicants, being one in a million in China is, uh, is less unusual than in other parts of the, the world. Uh, so I, I think that in uh, considering the mechanism by which this is happening, it's incomplete just to look at 
the immigration without uh, seeing whether uh, the increase in scientists and engineers or STEM, uh, whatever, uh, would be comparable even without the immigrants. That is, uh, to what extent are we displacing American students who would otherwise have filled those positions? They aren't people who've lost jobs. They're people who were not competitive uh, when the market for education has become so global. Uh, a second uh, thought that I have about this is that uh, there is an interaction with foreign direct investment. Uh, many of the employers of H-1B <coughs> recipients are foreign-owned companies or joint ventures of US and foreign uh, companies. Why uh, they are located in the United States, it's not for cheap labor, uh, but for other purposes. And so there is an international effect that's uh, that's subtle, uh, but deserves some uh, attention. And then finally, one comment about Canada and the employment of um, non-high school graduates. I haven't looked at your Canadian results, but if you think about Alberta, which is an area that's absorbed a lot of scientists and engineers in the uh, petroleum sector, also employs a lot of uh, non-high school graduates uh, providing basic labor. So it's not, uh, at least in the case of Alberta, I'd be very surprised if it's babysitters and uh, gardeners. I think it's people who are working in the uh, petroleum sure, yeah. sector. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Can I just say one thing about the displacement, which is, uh, yeah, so th th um, the displacement story is exactly why we have looked also at the effect on employment uh, uh, in a refined version also of employment native scientists and engineers. So I take it with you, a lot of these people also have part of their education here, but the idea was to, a lot of them have an H-1B visa. So by, by taking the H-1B visa, we're also partly acknowledging the fact that a lot of people who go there have studied in the United States. But if you look at the displacement effect, you should observe that cities which have this huge growth of foreign scientists and engineers, you should observe fewer American, uh, US-born scientists and engineers. So that's why we look at as one of the outcome here is employment of the college educated. And then in a further version, we also have employment of the science and technology uh, uh, US-born. And there we don't find much of an effect. So in a sense, that's where the productivity idea comes from. There seems to be very little displacement uh, even within. In fact, the wage, the effect on wages of scientists and engineers, Americans seems to be uh, to have as positive an effect uh, from this as the general college educated. So uh, we are, I mean, we are very well aware that uh, uh, there is this, uh, uh, this idea out there, but in the long run, keep in mind, I mean, this is, these are 10 years interval that we look at. In the long run, this displacement story uh, doesn't buy. Maybe you say, well, it's a year by year that you should look at, uh, and then, yes, we, we, we um, have to look at that. But this was about more sort of the long run effects, and in the long run, that doesn't seem to be there. Uh, thank you very much. And I think with that, we're actually going to conclude the Q&A session so that Jeff can uh, deliver a few closing remarks.
Thank you to Cato. Thank you to the people who helped put it together. Thanks to the authors, discussants, session chairs, and especially thanks to everybody who came. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope we'll see you again next year. Thanks. <laughs>